Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, Episode 83, Pirates and the World's Greatest Conman. Now, first, as always, I want to thank our newest supporters. First, Shankar Satyanath for his generous donation, and then Puddle White, Emil Mitreff, and Graham Jarvis for all becoming supporters on Patreon. Thank you all so much. It has been an incredibly intense month for me, and you know, uh, stress levels are high, a million things are going on and getting, you know, messages and, and support from all of you, my listeners makes such a difference. It really just, every time it happens, it makes my day. I love hearing from you all. So yeah, as always feel free to reach out or something, um, or yeah, pledge a dollar per episode or just get in touch. Uh, like I said, love meeting all of you, but you're here for the episode. So let's get right into it. Now, last time we recapped season four, and before that, kind of looked into what was happening to Bulgarians during that season. But the last proper episode has us looking into the years of Suleiman's reign, the kind of final years of his reign, where the Ottomans and Habsburgs were kind of dueling in Hungary, and the Ottomans ultimately coming out on top, directly annexing most of the country. Suleiman also won the war against the Safavid Persians, annexed Iraq, and created a more stable border in the east. The Ottomans also finally faced a setback in the Mediterranean with the failed siege of Malta. Then, Suleiman finally died while on campaign in Hungary. So, it's now 1566, and Suleiman has four of his six sons still alive. The eldest from his first consort, Mahadevran, I think that's her name, probably an Albanian or Circassian, i.e. from the North Caucasus woman. And the remaining three were from uh, Hurem Sultan, a Polish woman who was captured as a slave by the Tatars. So you have four sons, one from one woman, three from another, and all of them would really rather like to be Sultan, not just for the power, but remember because when one of them becomes Sultan, the three of them are probably going to be strangled. So they all have a strong interest here. But before we kind of really jump into it, I just want to note, you maybe are aware, maybe not, that this is in fact the first episode of season five of the podcast. Season five is Ottoman Decline, which, okay, not necessarily fully kind of tying into the Ottoman Decline thesis. I just need to kind of an overarching theme of this episode. You know, without a doubt, the Ottomans reached what could be said to be their absolute peak under Suleiman. And so this season, we're going to really kind of follow what is happening from about 1566 all the way into the 19th century to 1807. We're going to see revolts and a really dramatically changing Europe, uh, the coming of the sort of modern era, and how all this is affecting uh, the Bulgarians in the Balkans and the greater Ottoman Empire to which they belong kind of leading into episode or sorry into season six which will cover the awakening of bulgarian national consciousness so very excited to get this started hope you're excited too now getting back to the death of Suleiman and his sons now his death really set up a problem now as we know 
Should the eldest son, Mustafa, inherit the throne, as I said, he would kill his three brothers. And Hrem Sultan, the father, or sorry, the mother of those next three sons, had no desire to see them killed, and so she was dead set to stop Mustafa from becoming Sultan. However, there was yet another complication to consider, because Mustafa was not just the oldest, but arguably the most qualified son. And he had the support of Suleiman's Grand Vizier, and, well, to quote the Austrian ambassador, quote, Suleiman had among his children a son called Mustafa, marvelously well-educated and prudent, and of an age to rule, since he is 24 or 25 years old. May God never allow a barbary of such strength to come near us, end quote. So, it seems pretty clear Mustafa should inherit the throne. He seems very well qualified. Problem is that, again, Harem Sultan was very powerful and she had enough political power to really stop Mustafa. And she quickly began using it to do just that. And a quick note here, this is really the beginning of a period where we're going to see the women of the Harem, the sort of you know wives and consorts of the Sultans, exercising a lot more power. And I'm going to talk about that more over the next few episodes, but just bear that in mind. Now, the intrigues over who was going to succeed Suleiman, they began actually about a decade before his death. First, Hurem Sultan spread rumors that Mustafa was trying to take over while Suleiman was off campaigning in Persia. Upon his return, Suleiman demanded to see Mustafa for, well, an explanation. Right there, in Suleiman's tent, his eldest son and greatest potential heir was strangled on uh, Suleiman's orders. The youngest son then died of grief within months, and this really left only Selim and Bayezid, one son from each of Suleiman's consorts alive when he died in 1566. Now remember, traditionally, again, the eldest son would be the closest to the capital, and therefore the first son to reach the capital after the death of the sultan would become the new sultan. And therefore, yeah, you know, they were placed in order of succession. Well, Selim and Bayezid actually ruled provinces that were basically equidistant from Constantinople. Selim governed a city on the Aegean coast, while Bayezid ruled an inland city in Anatolia. Now, I found some really conflicting sources, but it appears that Bayezid was more hesitant to accept his position uh, as governor of that Anatolian province and, and was accused of his father by rebellion as a result. And it seems that Suleiman and Selim may have actually fought Bayezid together, or that Selim fought him alone after Suleiman's death. Honestly, the timeline is very confused, and sources conflict significantly. But in either case, for about three years after Suleiman's death, the two brothers fought for the throne until Bayezid was ultimately defeated in 1559. When he was defeated, he fled to the Safavids, a smaller Ottoman force was sent after him, but it was defeated by them. Bayezid was warmly welcomed by the Shah of the Safavids and showered with gifts, no doubt because the Shah knew very well that he now had a tool which could bring instability and even civil war to his rival. On the other hand, though, war had only recently ended between the powers, and they had, again, demilitarized the entire border, and so Perhaps that's why the Shah ultimately decided that instead of using Bayezid as a tool to fight the Ottomans, he threw poor Bayezid in jail on Selim's request. 
Now, this took about two years of negotiation, but Bayezid was ultimately exchanged for about 400,000 gold coins and was executed by his brother. That meant that now, with the throne secure, Selim could leave governing largely to his grand vizier, Sokolu Mehmed Pasha, a Bosnian man who was taken by the Devshirme, an example, remember, of how someone could rise through the Devshirme system. You know, this was a, a, just a nobody from Bosnia who was now Grand Vizier. But anyways, this man, Mehmed Pasha, he had been commander of the Imperial Guard, High Admiral of the Fleet, Governor General of Rumelia, which remember meant he was living most likely in Sofia, ruling. He had been Third Vizier, Second Vizier, and ultimately Grand Vizier as of 1565. So kind of gives you a, a little bit of an insight into how, again, someone can rise from being taken as a child to be a slave of the Sultan. And instead of kind of going more into the just fighting arms of the Janissaries, though possibly he did, but really going into more administration and command. Now, at this point, I want to take a step back a few years and actually recap what had been happening from 1559 onwards, because I need to kind of finish up some of what was happening in Suleiman's reign, uh, well, while Suleiman's reign brought our attention elsewhere, because there's a lot going on. But the story starts in that year, in 1559, and concerns who I term in the title of this episode may be the world's greatest con man. So back in 1559... The Voivoda of Wallachia, Merkea the Shepherd, died. His 13-year-old son then took the throne, leading the boyars to rise against the boy, because, well, what was he going to do? He was 13. The boyars won the first battle, only to lose the next two, as the Voivoda got Ottoman support against them. His throne secure, the boy basically waited to grow up, and his mother acted as regent. Pretty normal stuff. Two years later, it was Moldavia's turn, as Alexandru Lapashneu was overthrown by Jakob Heraklid. Now, just when this Jakob guy was... Now, who he was was kind of an interesting question. He was an ethnic Greek, and by most accounts, again, kind of a con man. Here's the, the guy our little bit of the story is going to focus around. Over the course of his life, he claimed descent from a number of royal houses, Working, he committed various crimes and studied all over Europe, although sources are a bit unclear on some of the details because, well, the guy boasted a lot and made up a lot of stuff, so it's hard to pin him down on things. Over that time, he wrote some books on military matters, and he uh, also at some point converted to Protestantism. And it seems that while he was traveling around, he ended up in Vilnius, where he met some Moldavian boyars. And Vilnius, if you've forgotten currently the capital of Lithuania and at the time the capital of the Grand Duchy of Lithuania. On the suggestion of these boyars, he decided to come to Moldavia. And this was ostensibly to promote Protestantism and to resist the Voivoda at the time, Alexandru Lepashneunu, quite a name there, to oppose his regime. He wasn't very popular. Now, Alexandra was pushed out, but later returned with some financial and military backing. But ultimately, the king of Poland decided he wanted that man to remain on the throne. Uh, and, well, there was a lot of fighting. The second attempt was crushed. And in all this kind of chaos, Jakob Herklade ultimately staged his own death uh, and threw his enemies off of his trail. He was involved in all these intrigues, was trying to make himself ruler of Moldavia, and... 
again, you can see, you know, the guy's claiming descent from royal houses. He's coming and trying to take over a country in which he's a foreigner, even by religion. Uh, he's staging his own death. Pretty interesting stuff. So ultimately, Heraclid actually does get Polish and Ottoman backing to rule Moldavia, which is pretty impressive, speaks to his skills. And he gathers a force and invades again, depicting himself as a kind of liberator against a tyrant. He successfully defeats the Moldavian military, mostly with more advanced technology and firepower using arquebus soldiers from Spain. And Lapushnenu yeah, uh, ultimately sort of escapes and is captured by the Ottomans and imprisoned in Constantinople, which means Yakov Heraklid, he's now the sole guy ruling. Once in power, he declares that there will be equal treatment of all types of Christians and begins to kind of formulate an anti-Ottoman plan, which involved annexing Wallachia before retaking Greece and restoring the Byzantine Empire with, of course, himself as the new emperor. You can't say the guy didn't dream big. Uh, this is if we've looked at you know Moldavian history, which you know in most of the last few centuries, the, the greatest ambition of Moldavian ruler is just to resist the Ottomans and sort of keep the country together. And this guy's talking about restoring the Byzantine Empire. But events elsewhere, which will affect this interesting new ruler, were also brewing. The same year he took power, fifteen sixty one a major Hungarian lord defected to Ferdinand and the Habsburgs from, uh, well, the other Hungarian lord, that is, John Zapolya. The very next year, John Zapolya attempted to take his lands back, but was routed. And this kind of sparked a broader uprising by the Hungarian settlers. Uh, these were Hungarians living in Transylvania, and this uprising was brutally put down. That is to say, their leaders were impaled and mutilated. They were stripped of what rights they had, and two castles were built on their lands in order to really control them, and they were aptly called, to sort of translate the names, Sekely Assault and Sekely Regret. You know, you say a lot about John Zapolia, he's not the most effective ruler, but uh, he's got a sense of style. Now, this really turned Transylvania against John Zapolia and towards Ferdinand. They did not appreciate the way in which this revolt was put down, and so the result was that John was desperate enough to actually make an offer to Ferdinand. John said he would not call himself King of Hungary if Ferdinand would renounce control of Transylvania. But this was turned down. In the meantime, our old friend Jacob in Moldavia, well, he wanted to intervene and to fight for the Habsburgs against John. But it was really too much of a risk because John was sort of allied roughly with the Ottomans, and this would risk angering the Ottomans and bringing them into war before Jakob was really ready to take them on. Though, all that didn't really stop him from offering to annex Transylvania when the revolt was still initially brewing, so he's a bit cautious but still getting involved uh, when he feels like it. Still, despite all this chaos, ultimately war did not come between the two rival claimants to the Hungarian throne. So despite of the disagreements and things, uh, you know, John and Ferdinand did not fight. But Jakob Heraklid was still up to a lot of little schemes. He offered to marry the sister of Peter the Younger, and a move which would have Peter the Younger, sorry, the Voivoda of Wallachia, which would have given him a way to potentially annex Wallachia in the future, which, remember, was part of his sort of grand plan. But the marriage fell through. He even attempted 
to become the joint ruler of, of Moldavia and Cyprus, but Venice foiled his plan. How someone would effectively rule Moldavia and Cyprus at the same time, I have no earthly idea, but, you know, this guy is nothing if not ambitious. Still, Jakub was not going to really let anything stop him, because right about the same time his marriage proposal uh, in Wallachia was turned down, he just decided to go ahead and invade. But he was turned back. Still, he claimed to have a kind of dream in which he, someone told him that he should have the crown of Lachia, very conveniently for him, and he, well, still dreamed of pursuing this. But as you could probably guess, all these adventures and getting involved in his neighbors, all that slowly began to erode Jakob's domestic support within Moldavia. The peasants were angry about taxes and the fact that he was a Protestant, which led to the first of several assassination attempts. Some of Jakob's mercenaries were tricked into a feast and killed, which was part of another one which made him exceptionally paranoid, and so he killed the commander of his guards, which led to a mutiny. Now at this point, Jakob Heraklid, he's getting pretty desperate, and so he offers to retire and become a monk. But instead, a boyar kills him with a mace, which as I would put it, ended one of the more remarkable careers of what could very well be the world's greatest con man. I mean, if you think of someone who beats him, post in the Facebook group because that's a story I'd love to hear, but you know, as far as we can tell, this guy was a nobody who just sort of made up a backstory, went around Europe learning things, writing books and making friends and allies, and ultimately ran Moldavia for a while. So, go figure. But anyways... At this point, a boyar named Stefan Tomsha then took control of Moldavia, only to have to fight off a Wallachian invasion right away, and, well, he failed to get Ottoman support for his position, and so within a year he fled to Poland, where he was beheaded. Bad luck. At this point, our old friend, uh, Alexandru Lepashnenu, then used an alliance with the Crimean Tatars in order to return to power in exchange for allowing them to raid Moldavia, which they did and took 21,000 slaves. Uh, so, yeah, not a great situation for Moldavia. I mean, if someone has to make a deal with your enemies, like, you know, I'm going to take over this country, and in order to do that, I'm going to let someone raid it and take away 21,000 slaves, you're not in a great position. And it really shows how Moldavia is weakening. To make things even worse, once Alexandra was in power, well, having been betrayed several times in the past, he engaged in a series of bloody reprisals, really further weakening the state. All this, quite frankly, was a setback for Ferdinand and for the Habsburgs more generally. But something that was even more of a setback for poor Ferdinand was dying, which he did in 1564. His son Maximilian became Holy Roman Emperor, as well as King of Hungary, Croatia, and Bohemia. So, the Habsburg claim on the Hungarian throne remained right alongside their ongoing control of the throne of the Holy Roman Empire. Now, all these events take us right back to the death of Suleiman in 1566. Now, at this moment, as I mentioned, the Ottomans sued for peace. As with the succession, things were looking pretty chaotic, and, you know, with civil war looming, they obviously were not terribly interested in ongoing war with the Habsburgs. And because it took some time to negotiate and for Selim to secure the throne, a formal peace between the Ottomans and the Habsburgs wasn't actually signed until 1568. Still, 
In the intervening year, John Zapolya and an Ottoman Pasha invaded a Habsburg-controlled portion of Hungary, but Zapolya became sick, and so the invasion didn't really go anywhere. Ultimately, when the Treaty of Adrianople did bring peace, it saw the Habsburgs recognize Ottoman primacy in Moldavia, Wallachia, and Transylvania, but importantly, not in Hungary. In addition, Maximilian gave 30,000 ducats of annual tribute, or, okay, they didn't use the word tribute, they said it was a present, but it was tribute to the Ottomans. And, well, clearly the Habsburgs wished to save face, but no one could doubt that this treaty secured Ottoman dominance in the region. And although it avoided further conflict between the Ottomans and the Habsburgs, it was clear that the Ottomans had come out on top. Now, speaking of control, also around this time, the Ottomans were really worried that John Zapolya might die. As I mentioned, he got quite sick, which ended that invasion. And so the Ottomans made a deal where the lords of Transylvania could elect their own ruler, but that the Sultan had to approve that ruler, which was quite similar to how things worked with the Crimean Tatars. Now, this shows that the Ottomans were still kind of allowing independent rulers in Moldavia, Wallachia, Hungary, and Transylvania, which meant that they weren't so interested in exerting more direct rule there for the time being. They were still okay having locals run those places as long as those locals had Ottoman backing. The question now is just what Selim would do now that he had peace with the Habsburgs and that his kind of broader control of that region was pretty well set in stone. Would he attempt to further entrench his control there and kind of, you know, kick out the local rulers? Or would he try to expand east against the Safavids? Would he try to take more land in the Mediterranean? Or would he just kick back in Constantinople and do nothing? Which, you know, in your ruler is always an option. Well, while Selim was contemplating his next move, the Habsburgs were grateful that they had made peace at this moment because around this time, a revolt began in the Netherlands against Habsburg rule, a major revolt. And so I'm mentioning this, and this is important in our story, which may seem weird, because it brings us to the Barbary pirates. Now, anyone like myself who studied American history in school has perhaps heard of the Barbary pirates because... Well, the U.S. fought a war with them just after gaining its independence in 1776. Now, why the U.S. would fight pirates uh, off, off the North African coast is a story for another day and a few centuries in the future. But just know the Barbary pirates are, well, they're becoming important. Now, who were they? The Barbary pirates really emerged slowly over time as a kind of decentralized force based in North Africa. Now, early on, they were more of an annoyance than a real threat. But once the Ottomans began employing them as privateers, now a privateer is basically a pirate who has official backing from some government. And so and a government has given them official sort of cause to go steal stuff and ships and people from other people's ships. That's a privateer. So yeah, once they had this official backing, they became a much bigger threat to their enemies. And by the 16th century, they were a major threat in the entire Mediterranean Sea, prompting coastal communities around the area to build defensive structures or even straight up move away from the coast to avoid them. Which brings us back to the Dutch Revolt. Now, 
While this revolt is going to play out over several decades, what's important is that the Dutch are going to cooperate with the Barbary pirates, giving them state-of-the-art Dutch ships, which they could use to disrupt Habsburg Spanish shipping, thus you know, weakening the Habsburgs and making it easier for the Dutch to continue their revolt and gain independence. And the result of this is that the Barbary pirates gained the ability to sail in the Atlantic as well as the Mediterranean, something they didn't have the technology to do before, but the Dutch gave them that technology. The eventual result will be, in the future we'll talk about it, Ottoman troops attacking places like Ireland. But for now, just know that the power and capabilities of these fearsome pirates is on the rise. Back in Europe, both Moldavia and Wallachia were experiencing their own changes in leadership, yet again. In 1568, we saw the death of Alexandru uh, Lepashnenu, who we've been talking about, and the replacement by his son Bogdan IV of Moldavia. Nothing else to report there, just a change in leadership. But in Wallachia, things were a bit more interesting. Peter the Younger, their voivoda, went into exile. You'll remember he came to power as a very young man with Ottoman help. Well, now the Ottomans seem to have changed their mind about him, couldn't find any particular reason why, and so he was imprisoned in Constantinople and subsequently poisoned. The boy had become voivoda at just 13 years old and died at 21. Poor guy. He was succeeded by the great-grandson of the infamous Vlad Dracul, a man named Alexander II Merkea who had grown up in Istanbul and really knew nothing much about Wallachia before being sent there by the Ottomans to rule it for them. The man had a reputation for cruelty, which he established quickly, poisoning every boyar he didn't trust almost immediately after arriving in Wallachia. So you can't say he didn't learn anything from his great-grandpa Vlad. And, well, remember back earlier in this episode where we were kind of wondering what Selim was going to do now that peace had come with the Habsburgs? Well, that's the time he makes his move, and it's one that nobody expects. Because what comes at this point is the First Russo-Turkish War. Now, there's going to be 12 of these wars over the course of the next several centuries, so pay attention, but this is the first one. And actually, the last war, not a Russo-Turkish war, but the last war between the Ottoman Empire and the Russian Empire is going to kind of end almost exactly 350 years after this one begins. And so, you know, as if I have to tell you, you should know that the relationship between the Ottomans and Russia is going to be a definitive one for Ottoman history and very much for Bulgarian history as well. Now, this first war began with the Astrakhan Khanate, a Tatar-based, Tatar state kind of based at the mouth of the Volga River where it drains into the Caspian Sea. Now, this Khanate had broken away from the Golden Horde just as that state was sort of failing around the beginning of the 16th century. It had then been conquered by the Russian Tsar Ivan the Terrible in 1556. So by this point, it hadn't existed for 12 years, which raises the very valid question, how does a state which hasn't existed for 12 years start a war? Well, that brings us back to the government of Selim II. Now, as I mentioned, you know, at this point, the Ottoman sultans are a bit less active in the governing of the state. Uh, and people like their mothers, their wives, and their grand viziers are becoming much more prominent. And Selim was no exception. His grand vizier, Sokolu Mehmet Pasha, was really running things. And this man dreamed of building a canal 
which would link the Don and the Volga rivers. This canal would allow the goods of these vast steppe lands to easily flow from the Volga River to the Don, to the Sea of Azov, to the Black Sea, and ultimately to Constantinople, giving the Ottomans greater commercial access to these lands. Remember, you know, more broadly, the, the kind of world of trade has changed a lot recently. You know, before the, the Europeans kind of found the new world and uh, traveled around Africa and found all these new trade routes, the Ottomans could really dominate most of the east-west trade. Uh, but now that wasn't as much the case. And so clearly they were looking for economic opportunities to make that kind of east-west trade a bit cheaper and easier so it could sort of rival commercially the ability of Europeans to go get those spices and those goods themselves. But the problem with uh, this whole scheme was that accomplishing it would mean challenging Russia, both militarily and commercially. So in 1569, a joint Ottoman-Crimean invasion began in order to take the former lands of the Astrakhan Khanate. The invasion force was around 20,000 Ottoman soldiers, aided by f somewhere between 30 and 50,000 Crimean Tatars. The armies, together, headed for the newly built Russian fortress which now guarded the mouth of the Volga, while the Ottoman navy blockaded the Russian port of Azov. The army laid siege to the fortress. However, they were successfully attacked by fortress with forces within the fortress and were ultimately pushed back. Then, a relief attack by a Russian army of 30,000 successfully attacked the Ottomans and the Tatars. As a result, this army began to retreat back into Ottoman and Tatar territory. The problem was that this occurred just as winter was coming to the steppe, resulting in massive losses due to the bitter cold. These losses were estimated as high as 70% and were aided by attacks from Circassians, again a people of the North Caucasus who were allied with Russia at this moment, along the way. Adding to the disaster was the destruction of the Ottoman fleet in a storm. And, well, looking at the war as a whole, it was an utter catastrophe for the Ottomans. However, in the peace treaty, which came in 1570, the Ottomans were able to negotiate for the safe passage of Muslim pilgrims and traders between their lands and Central Asia, as well as for Russia to abandon the fortress it had in the North Caucasus. So, Ironically, this was, you know, while this was kind of a major military defeat for the Ottomans, they actually achieved a lot of their economic aims. And this sort of further aided their ability to trade with Central Asia through the North Caucasus. But the still greater event for the Ottoman Empire was that it had taken its first steps into the Russian steppe. It had taken its first kind of excursion against the Russian state and into these territories, which, again, was the beginning of a relationship which had helped to find the nearly four centuries of history between these two states that's to come. But elsewhere, events were progressing fast, particularly in Hungary. In 1569, a religious figure in Transylvania attempted to gather peasants into an anti-Ottoman crusade, only to be defeated by local nobles. This may point to Transylvania's ruler, John Zapolya, taking his Ottoman vassal status seriously, and again, kind of helping them put this down. The same year the Russo-Turkish War ended, 1570, John Zapolya was actually added again, signing an agreement with the Holy Roman Emperor Maximilian to finally and formally give up his title of King of Hungary and replace it with Prince of Transylvania and Lord of parts of the Kingdom of Hungary. 
recognizing the fact that Zapolya and the Ottomans controlled maybe a little more than half of Hungarian territory, but realizing that, okay, he was going to allow the Habsburgs to control the title King of Hungary. As a part of this agreement, John also promised that his lands would go to Maximilian when he died, and also made himself a vassal of Maximilian in the meantime. So, it's a little bit weird. We don't know quite where John Zapolya sees himself between the Habsburgs and the Ottomans. He's kind of playing both sides. He just put down an anti-Ottoman potential crusade, but then he's agreeing to hand his ter- lands over to the Habsburgs. So once again, we see an Ottoman vassal at the border of the empire changing sides in this sort of cold war between the ha- them and the Habsburgs. But Ultimately, John Zapolya is going to die childless within a year. I'll talk about that more in the next episode. But as a result, Maximilian is going to kind of finally become the uncontested king of Hungary. But with religious upheavals and lots of other problems within the Habsburg lands, he really couldn't exert his claim and mount an attack on the Ottoman-controlled portions of Hungary. So, you know, despite all the effort it took for the Habsburgs to get this title... By the time they finally get it, it's not worth very much. And the Ottomans, for their part, well, they were interested in fighting for that title because Selim, and again, he's kind of relaxing in his palace more while the Grand Vizier runs things. So when I say Selim, it's basically the Grand Vizier. He wasn't that interested in, like, uh, really doing much to get the title King of Hungary. He was willing to let the Habsburgs have it because his eyes were on a far more valuable prize, and that is the island of Cyprus. And what that means is war with the power who controls Cyprus, which is Venice. And so next time, we'll see whether the fourth Ottoman-Venetian war progresses the same way the previous three did. Now that the Ottomans have faced some setbacks in their long line of Mediterranean conquests, will their enemies finally be able to stop them on the high seas? Or will the Ottomans finally deliver a killing blow to their old Venetian foe? Tune in next time to find out. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by Teddy Raven. Check out the Bulgarian language version of the podcast at the website, bghistorypodcast.com, where you can also find maps and a timeline and all kinds of cool information about this and every episode. And as always, consider supporting us on Patreon or just getting in touch. Thanks and have a good one.